Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine... In times like these, can we even think about the idea of utopia? Artist Colleen Smith says yes. Her film celebrates utopias founded by black women. The actual manifestation of change has always been the work of women. And black women have been imagining a better world. And not only imagining it, but making it so. Plus how the battle over reopening schools is raising questions about equity and whose voices get amplified. What I think is a crime is to say we are we need to open schools from an equity perspective. They have not touched COVID. It's not in their families, it's not in their neighborhood. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. I was really struck by a conversation I had recently with a guy named Alex Sanchez in L.A. He's 44 years old, about my age, and for most of his life, pretty healthy, no pre-existing conditions. He got really sick with COVID, though, almost died. My COVID journey started um, on the 27th of December. I had my uh, son come visit for Christmas. And he works at an Amazon warehouse where there's been outbreaks. Alex spent two weeks in the hospital in intensive care. And while he was there, he says nurses told him about a 100-year-old woman in the same hospital who was released after beating COVID, while another patient, a 22-year-old athlete, died. Sometimes this virus is so unpredictable. Alex is recovering at home now, but he's still using an oxygen machine to help him breathe. You can hear it in the background when he's talking about being a field organizer with the Garment Workers Center in Los Angeles, where he advocates for mostly undocumented women who work in sweatshops. Those are the people that should be focused on first, but it just seems like they don't have a voice or big lobbying power that they're being excluded from the vaccine um, delivery. Even though they are producing uh, masks and gowns for the healthcare community. He says that most of the 45,000 garment workers in Los Angeles aren't getting tested for COVID, much less going to the hospital if they get sick. It's hard to know how bad outbreaks have been in garment sweatshops because a lot of them operate in the shadows and workers move between jobs a lot. Alex is worried about major underreporting when it comes to knowing how bad the pandemic really is in our state and how safe it is to reopen. I don't believe the ICU numbers tell the whole story 
as far as how many people are going to live and die because of reopening. And I, I think it's, it's way too soon. And I don't feel that we're going to be able to flatten a curve if we still have people out there uh, at high risk not having access to a, a vaccine. Like Olegaria Ruiz, she's a garment worker who spent 12-hour days, seven days a week, sewing masks and hospital gowns and hairnets for doctors and nurses. Ahorita que en la pandemia estuve trabajando los domingos haciendo mascarillas los siete días. De siete a siete estuve trabajando. Olegaria talked with our intern, Héctor Arzate, over Zoom this week. Olegaria, ¿así se, así se, se dice su nombre? Sí, exacto. She says she hasn't always gotten minimum wage for all the hours she's worked. And she says it's really hard to socially distance in a crowded factory with 50 or 60 or sometimes 80 garment workers, especially when employers don't provide masks. Olegaria says she's scared about getting sick, but feels like there's no choice but to show up for work. She's undocumented and she doesn't qualify for unemployment or a stimulus check. She also doesn't qualify for a vaccine because she's only in her 40s. But she says she doesn't think any of her co-workers, including those over 65, have gotten it yet. A lot of them don't have internet, so it's really hard to figure out the system. While he's recovering at home, Alex Sanchez, the organizer with the Garment Workers Center, has been trying to help workers navigate vaccine websites. In between doing his hourly exercises to try and expand his lung capacity. He says, in a way, going through his ordeal with COVID has helped him realize just how vulnerable other people in his community really are. Because I had the privilege of having healthcare to go to the doctor, but most folks don't. It might be funny to say, but maybe I needed to walk in somebody else's shoes in order to understand what they're going through. So um, maybe I had to live it in order for me to be able to preach it. So I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad everything's working out. Uh, and I'm just trying to do whatever I can to keep our community safe. We've brought you so many stories on our show about people struggling with a loss of hope. But today we're going to have a conversation with somebody who creates art from a deep sense of hope and whose work also focuses on Black joy. Colleen Smith is an artist and filmmaker who, despite how broken the world may seem sometimes, still believes we all have the means to create utopia in our everyday lives. She has some immersive installations on display right now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and the LA County Museum of Art. And even though those museums are closed due to COVID, we wanted to give you a glimpse of part of her artwork, a film called Sojourner, with a soundtrack by Alice Coltrane. It examines a kind of utopia for black women. Colleen, tell us what inspired the theme of utopia in your film? 
I've long uh, been intrigued with the idea of utopia and have grown accustomed like everybody else to having people you know, dismiss utopias as impossible, fantastical and escapist or naive notions. But in reality, you know, people make utopias happen all the time. And this film to me was really about looking very pointedly at individuals and groups of people and their actions that produced utopian ethics and manifestations in the world. Well, and you capture that in these really beautiful, almost Polaroid-like images of places like the Watts Towers. Simon Rodia built the Watts Towers. He built those over the span of 25 years in the community of Watts. And when he started building it, that neighborhood was predominantly African-American. He built these towers, you know, on his off hours after work in this strangely collective manner. You know, there's all these anecdotes about his neighbors saying, it's fine if you build these towers, but can you just stop working on them past 10 o'clock? Because we all have to get up and go to work in the morning. And now the towers sort of function as a kind of artery and cultural currency and leverage. And the fact that Simon Rodia, you know, built these towers and then literally gave them away to the community. It's like acts of radical generosity. Well, in some ways, the inspiration for this film came from a photograph that was taken at the Watts Towers, right? A photo taken by um, Time Life photographer, uh, Billy Ray. And I stumbled on it doing research on the Watts Towers. I felt like they were almost like fantastical images of young men holding transistor radios and just sort of like languidly hanging out in the Watts Towers. And they're taking a color, like ectochrome, beautiful contrast, beautiful color, almost like a fashion shoot. But as I dug deeper into the context for these photos, I learned that the angle of his story was supposed to be sort of like the angry, seething aftermath of the Watts uh, Mm -hmm. rebellion. One of the things that the Billy Ray photograph provoked in me or that I really noticed was the way in which when we talk about activism, change, politics, and power, the thing that is always pictured is a male image and that in fact the actual manifestation of change has always been the work of women. And I just wanted it to be really visible that black women have been imagining a better world and not only imagining it, but making it so. This photo just kind of became like a talisman in terms of my research. So I decided that I wanted to reenact that photo somehow, some way, but with women instead of the gorgeous young men that are in the photo that he took. You also picked up on the notion of the transistor radio, right, which appears in that photograph and becomes kind of a motif throughout the film. On Monday, after breakfast, I went to my place of prayer feeling blessed. And while I was beholding the clouds, these words were spoken. Do you know what you have done? You have climbed to the heaven and have taken hold of the clouds. You use it, you know, to tune in and out of these different historical reflections on Black women's lives, not only oppression, but also joy and spirituality. Yes. I wanted the voices to be weaving in and out with the environment, in and out of static, that you would have to kind of lean in to listen to them. It really did feel like the kinds of discoveries that I used to make listening to the radio when I was a kid. And that was like the way you would hear music. And I felt like I was 
having that same experience, they were just sort of like being uh, transmitted to me, like right when I needed them somehow. We would like to affirm that we find our origins in the historical reality of Afro-American women's continuous life and their struggle for survival and liberation. As Angela Davis points out in reflections on the black woman's role in the community of slaves, black women have always embodied, if only in their physical manifestation, an adversary stance to white male rule and have actively resisted its inroads upon them and their communities in both dramatic and subtle ways. So you hear the Kumbahi River Collective, which wrote this astounding statement that they published in 1977. Above all else, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable, that our liberation is a necessity, not as an adjunct to somebody else's, but because of our need as human persons for autonomy. This may seem so obvious as to sound simplistic, but it is apparent that no other ostensibly progressive movement has ever considered our specific oppression as a priority or worked seriously for the ending of that oppression. Those words, you know, are so profound and, and knowing that, you know, women like Audre Lorde and Barbara Smith, you know, were involved in the collective and that they really helped introduce ideas around, you know, intersectional feminism and just knowing that there was such groundbreaking work that was happening. The part that I think is so crucial to remember in terms of all kinds of world building is um, when they're talking about understanding that if you work to build a world for the least powerful and least empowered in society, then you're building a better world for everyone in it. It's from the perspective of, uh, for instance, black women, that that political position is actually a position that enables a kind of liberatory ethic for the entire society. And I just think that that's like a really important principle and why the document is so vital right now. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, level the human is enough. Alice Coltrane's music becomes the soundtrack for Sojourner and for some of your other film work. After John Coltrane died, she went to India. She began to follow a guru. She, in fact, came home and founded her own ashram. It's just so fascinating for me because I'm Indian American and Hindu, and I know that there's this whole backdrop of the 1960s, you know, a lot of people getting really interested in Indian spirituality and musicians too, the Beatles. But, you know, I really think of it as kind of a white fad where, you know, people got got really into Indian spirituality and mysticism. So it's so fascinating to me to see this beautiful black woman in a saffron colored sari combining gospel music with Hindu bhajans, these spiritual songs. Isn't that incredible? Like the music that she made, I really have never heard anything like it. She really is bringing in bebop and gospel and then the raga form all into one sound. It just blows my mind. Like I found it, I found it totally intoxicating.
the landscape is very important to this film also. I mean, you've got the images of the ashram, you've got other sites that are very California, like the Antelope Valley Poppy Reserve and Vasquez Rocks. Tell me how the California landscape inspires you, and is there something about California and its places that feels spiritual in some way to you? There is a thing about the land in California and those rolling poppies and Southern California, where Alice Coltrane settled in particular, so close to the ocean, but in these rolling hills that does feel as if anything is possible. That song that Sojourner opens with is a song where basically she repeats over and over again the word California in this ecstatic fashion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> basically, the song is her saying that God told her to move to California. And of course, then there's Joshua Tree, which is where you end the film. And there's just such incredible beauty in the early morning light that you captured in the desert. And in these moments, you know, where these women are together, hugging and, and caring for each other in this really tender way, and also wearing these incredible bright print outfits as they're tuning into the radio. The way that light, once it raked across the desert, the second it crests over the mountains, like, wow, this is, this is truly profound. I didn't have to give a lot of directions. I didn't have to set a tone, the landscape, and that sunrise did everything. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, it's like 12 black women in the desert. And it actually isn't. It's a really diverse group of women together. But they are, I believe, practicing black culture. When those women are holding each other's hands or just grieving together or walking together, I just wanted to simply allow uh, these women to be visible, to be pictured and to be present in themselves, for themselves. You know, as I got to watch this film, which stands alone as a piece of art, I kept reminding myself that you created it as part of a museum installation. You really intended it as an immersive experience for people. But of course, during the pandemic, museums have been closed. It's been hard to have a show installed at my favorite art institution in the city, uh, LA County Museum of Art, and not be able to share it with people. I think relative to the piles of bodies stacking up all around us, that's nothing. It's just not even something to complain about. It's, it's simply a signifier of the conditions. And I would rather no one see the show and no one die. Um, I just wish that could be the case. 
That was artist Colleen Smith, who spoke to us from Boyle Heights. Her films and art installations explore the idea of utopia. You can catch a glimpse of the film Sojourner and find out more about her work in a short video from SF MoMA. Find it at kqed.org arts. We are coming up on a year since most schools in California shut down, and there is no sugarcoating it. It has been really hard for those of us who are parents. Come on in here, please. Get on. No, no, no. You need to get on your Zoom over here. On Zoom, mom. You need to get away from your brother so you're not on the same Zoom. Come on. Can you go in the other room, please, so you guys aren't bothering each other? I'm trying to work. And now, with the statewide shelter-in-place order lifted, some parents are clamoring for schools to reopen as soon as possible. This week, the city of San Francisco became the first in the nation to sue its school district and demand a plan for reopening. But getting all the pieces in place to reopen schools is really complicated. And here to help us unpack things is Julia McAvoy. She's the senior editor at KQED's Education and Equity Desk. Hey there, Julia. Hello, Sasha. Tell us about what you've been hearing from parents. Well, I want you to meet a woman named Megan Bacigalupi, and she lives in Oakland. She's one of these parents who has become really frustrated. She's watching other public school districts in other parts of the country and the state that are bringing kids back into schools. And she sees charters and private schools opening. And so she and a lot of other parents in larger urban districts just don't get it. Why can't their teachers union and their district leaders. Figure it out. I have young kids in kindergarten and second grade for which learning through Zoom is nearly impossible. But also, my second grader has dyslexia. And the lack of engagement, interest in school, and the inability for him to continue to make meaningful reading progress while online is what spurred me to form our group here in Oakland and also to help get a statewide group, Open Schools California, together. So this open schools movement is really parents who want more leadership from Governor Newsom, honestly, on this. And they're calling this a public health crisis because of the mental health problems that they're seeing happen to children. And they're really concerned. So to critics who question our intentions, I would say, how is it not a progressive value to want your children to be educated in school? How is speaking up for kids suddenly so controversial? So many parent advocates, including Megan, are pointing to a lot of data we have now that shows that many black and brown students who, you know this, Sasha, before Mm -hmm. COVID, they were already in schools that were failing them. They lacked resources. These are the entrenched inequities of our public school system. So now some of these kids are unsurprisingly falling further behind. So the structural inequities from before are just getting worse. And so open schools says, look, we're just trying to speak up for those children. Well, there is some controversy, right, Julia? I mean, the concern is that the voices that are amplified right now in this debate are the voices of more affluent white parents and that parents who are living in communities hit harder by COVID really have a different perspective on all of this. 
Yeah. And I mean, I want to say Megan agrees no one should be forced to send their children back if they feel unsafe, of course. But this advocacy on the part of affluent parents is raising the eyebrows of other parents. And one of them I met is Picolia Manigo. So she's a black mom of three kids in Oakland and one she says has underlying conditions. She's also a community activist and really connected at her school. It's not in their families. It's not in their neighborhood. It's an amorphous kind of idea of, and a threat. So what Picolia wants other, you know, more affluent parents who don't have to leave their homes and can work from their home offices to know is that her school's neighborhood has been hit really hard by COVID. Many people living nearby are essential workers. They're forced to leave their homes to pay the rent and support their families. And she's saying, look, um, we're hearing of families testing positive every week. You know, we've had a a mom that died due to COVID complications in my daughter's class, right? You know, I I think that changes your perspective, right, around like how this uh, virus functions and moves. So that, that changes my understanding of the risk, right? It's not just a theoretical. It's not just, oh, maybe. It's like, no, actually, this is real. So Picolia is basically saying, you know, don't weaponize black and brown children on behalf of your uh, desire to get your kids back in schools. And uh, she just doesn't appreciate these parents speaking on behalf of all parents. What I think is a crime is to say we are we need to open schools from an equity perspective. Right. And I and I I really think there's some contradictions in how people use the. Um, the word equity in COVID. Well, what do you think would make families who are really worried about their kids' safety and their family's safety feel better about opening schools? Such a good question, Sasha. You know, I mean, let's take a look at West Contra Costa County. They surveyed about 6,000 families. Only 15% of those families said they wanted their kids back inside schools. But there were a lot more parents who said, hey, I would send my kid back like when the majority of my county's been vaccinated. Um, So, you know, there's just some basic things that just haven't happened in districts that would probably make uh, everybody feel better. I mean, look at San Francisco right now. They have haven't even walked through all their school buildings to make sure that they're physically prepared for social distancing. It's kind of crazy after all these months. Hmm. Well, it seems like for teachers who are worried about getting sick, you know, one big hurdle to overcome that would make them feel safer is if they could get vaccinated and if teachers and kids could get regular testing. So where do we stand on all of that? Well, in some parts of the state, Sasha, teachers are getting vaccinated, mostly right now, smaller rural districts like Napa, which has 17,000 kids. Um, those teachers have been getting their vaccines. And there's an interesting pilot program that could really help screen kids before they entered schools. It's called like rapid antigen surveillance testing. And it's like a 15-minute turnaround time for kids. They get it mm-hmm. before they get into the building. And one district that's working on this right now is La Honda Pescadero in San Mateo County. So that's a fairly rural and smaller school district. What would it take to scale this up for some of these massive big districts in California, LA, Oakland? Well, it's interesting because the surveillance testing stuff is happening across the, the country. In California, it's being funded by the California Endowment. And that organization says that Compton in LA is interested and that they've been talking with Oakland Unified about having them work it um, into their reopening plans. But of course, like everything else, right, Sasha, it's going to take money to pay for all the tests, even though they're pretty cheap, uh, because you're going to have to 
do these nose swabs on all of these kids twice a week. So there are logistical complications and money needed at almost every twist and turn of this. Julia McAvoy is the senior editor for the Education and Equity Desk at KQED. By the way, full disclosure, the California Endowment, which is funding the pilot project we just mentioned, has also in the past funded KQED, where we produce the California Report. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor. Our director is Amanda Font, and Brendan Willard is our engineer. Our team also includes Asala Sanapur and Hector Arsate. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.